Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Our scripture reading will be found in the book of John. John chapter 6, we will read the first 15 verses. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company coming to him, he said unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Then Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in the numbers about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were sat down and likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, which they had seen the miracles that Jesus did, said, This is of a true that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Well, before I get started, I do want to just say thank you to all of you for being here. I'm going to try something I'm a little bit nervous about, but every once in a while I get a burst of creativity. I want to begin by asking you to imagine that you're a Jew living 2,000 years ago in northern Galilee, and you along with thousands of other people are sitting on the ground on a hill within sight of the Sea of Galilee. It's a huge crowd of people, thousands of people, and they're all seated, uh, mesmerized, listening to a man at, at the base of the incline. You listen as he speaks, and you wonder at how so many people are able to be so quiet. It's as though you're the only one listening to Jesus, unaware of the presence of this huge crowd of people all straining silently to grasp each word that the teacher says. You don't realize how much time has passed until Jesus concludes his teaching, and you glance further in front of you past Jesus and notice the shadow cast on the Sea of Galilee by the sun, which you realize is quickly receding below the hills of Nazareth behind you. And as Jesus finishes teaching, the crowd stands up and prepares for the long walk home. You walked many miles here with your family today, and so you're anticipating not super eagerly the walk back. And just as you're turning to leave, you hear a call from a few yards away. One of Jesus' 12 disciples is giving instructions. 
Uh, You see him counting off 50 people at a time and telling them to sit in a group. You follow his instructions and you sit down with your group, all of you wondering what's about to happen. And you overhear someone say that Jesus is going to feed everyone. But you know that can't be true. The size of this crowd, there's just no way. Then you see the disciples, they're now standing around Jesus. Each of them has an open basket and Jesus is filling them with bread and fish. One of those baskets makes its way to your group and is passed down the first row, each person taking a loaf and a fish before passing it down. You're sitting towards the back of the group, so you know it's not going to make it to you in time. It's going to run out long before it gets to you. But to your surprise, the basket is headed to your row and it appears to not be empty yet. As the person sitting next to you hands you the basket, you look inside hoping that there will be enough for you to at least get a decent meal. And to your astonishment, the basket is still full. You feel as though you're in a dream as you take your portion and and pass the basket down, wondering how it's possible that all these people have taken food from the basket without it running out. The crowd around you begins to stir as the reality of what is happening sets in. Jesus just fed thousands of people from a little boy's lunch. And everybody ate as much as they wanted. And, And even beyond that, there's 12 baskets full of leftovers. Suddenly, the crowd begins to turn into a mob, excitedly rushing toward Jesus to bring him to the city and declare him king. But Jesus turns to the crowd and begins to speak, his voice hushing their enthusiasm. He dismisses the crowd and turns away, walking toward a mountain in the distance. I want you to imagine the impression that that would have left on you. I think in America today, we have um, such an overabundance of food that this story doesn't seem that miraculous, right? We've all been to buffets. We've eaten as much as we wanted. We've probably done it numerous times this week. But in Israel 2,000 years ago, this didn't happen. You didn't get to eat until you were full. If you were lucky, you got a decent meal every day. And so just imagine being one of those people, seeing Jesus feed thousands of people. Imagine how impactful it would have been on you to realize that, that Jesus could give every person in Galilee as much food as they wanted. He could multiply food. And I want us now to look at verse 22 of this chapter. This is actually the text we're going to be considering this morning. I had Marvin read the first few verses just to set the stage because the rest of the chapter doesn't really make sense if you haven't read the story of the feeding. So verse 22, the Bible says, The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there save the one whereinto his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone, howbeit... There came other boats from Tiberias, nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum, seeking for Jesus. So we see verse 22 says, the day following. This is the day after the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, so he feeds thousands of people. And the next day, all those people are looking for him. And naturally so, right? They're, They're hungry again. And in verse 24, they can't find him, so they, they get in a ship, and presumably they pay to sail across the sea because they, they want to find Jesus. Verse 25, When they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. So after the feeding of the 5,000, the next day, this crowd of people looks intently for Jesus. And when they find him, Jesus says, you're seeking me because you ate those loaves. In other words, these people were so excited about Jesus' ability 
to multiply food that they came back to him to get more food. And, and this makes sense. Again, if you're, if you're living in a culture where you don't have an abundance of food and you're lucky if you get a good meal every day, well, this would be a treasure trove to find a guy that can give you limitless food. In verse 26, we'll keep reading here. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. So Jesus is basically saying to them, you're seeking me for the wrong reasons. You're following me and you're seeking me because you want more food. But I have way more to offer and you're missing it. Verse 28, they said unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And I think here they're getting the impression Jesus isn't going to feed them again today. And so they say, well, well, how can we do this miracle? You know, how can we, can you give us the instructions so we can multiply food ourselves? And then we won't have to bother you. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. And that's not the answer they were looking for. But again, Jesus is trying to bring their focus back to what they're missing. He says, stop worrying about the bread. There's something way more valuable here that I can give you, and that's eternal life. Verse number 30, it says, They said, therefore, unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe? So Jesus tells them in verse 29, Believe on me. Verse 30, they say to him, Show us a sign. Do a work for us. And this is just amazing to me. I mean, he had just fed thousands of people less than 24 hours ago. But what greater sign would you need to believe that he was who he said he was? In verse 31, they give him a miracle. They say, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they ask for a sign. And they say, you want us to believe on you? Okay, well, show us a sign. And here's a suggestion. How about you give us bread from heaven? They're still focused on the bread. Verse 32, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Now, in order to understand the rest of the chapter, you have to get this metaphor, okay? So Jesus says, first of all, God gave them bread in the wilderness, but God is now giving you bread and it's me. Okay? And he says, if you, if you believe on me, you have eternal life. So, so they looked at bread as, or food as, the source of life. And there's truth to that. You can't live without food. So we eat and that gives it, that sustains our life. And Jesus is saying, if you partake of me by believing on me, you can have eternal life. So I'm a way better type of bread, basically, is what Jesus is saying. I'm way more valuable than temporary food. Verse 34, these people don't get it. They say unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you, that ye also have seen me and believed not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. This is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? So the crowd wants physical bread, and Jesus is trying to give them eternal life. And they respond by murmuring, complaining. Jesus tells them, I didn't come down from heaven just to feed you physically. Yes, he could have fed 5,000 people again. He could have fed everybody in Israel every day, but that wasn't his purpose. 
He came to provide salvation to all who would come to him in faith. In verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verse 47, this is very important. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof, and not die. So Jesus says, Your ancestors ate bread from heaven during Moses' time. That's true. But they're all dead. It didn't last forever. What I have to give you is eternal. This is far more significant. Verse 51, he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any, if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. So Jesus says, food isn't the answer to your problem. There's something far more important, and I'm here to provide that for you. It's eternal life. You can eat of this bread and you'll never die. Now, clearly this is a metaphor. And it, he makes clear at the end of verse 51, he's talking about his death on the cross. Uh, so a way that maybe you can understand is when we eat food, right, we take it in our mouth and we break it apart, we crush it, and it provides sustenance to us. It keeps our life going. And Jesus is saying, by me being crushed and by allowing myself to be destroyed, I'm going to provide eternal life for you. Clearly this is symbolic language, but verse 66 we don't have time to get into all of the next few verses, but verse 66, you notice it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Now, this is not talking about the 12 disciples. Remember, there were many people that were following Christ. Or in fact, in this story, there's thousands of people following Christ. And after they heard Jesus say, I'm not giving you bread today, they stopped following him. Verse 67, Jesus said unto the 12, his closest followers, he says, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter wasn't following Jesus just for some bread. He was following Jesus because he believed Jesus was the Son of God, and because Jesus had the words of eternal life. And so when, when Jesus asked them, are you guys going to leave me too? All these people are turning away. They're, they're not following me anymore. How about you guys? Peter says, where are we going to go? Who's got anything to compare to what you, you provide for us? There's nowhere else to go. You've got the words of eternal life. You, you can't get that anywhere else. You're the son of God. Who else would we want to be with? And so here's the question for us this morning. It's a simple thought. Why is it that we follow Christ? Do we follow Jesus for bread or for him? Now, again, in our context, bread isn't that big of a deal because we have an overabundance of it. But think of it this way. Do we follow Christ because of blessings? Because we want God to bless our lives and to give us something and to provide something for us? Or do we follow Christ because of him? Do we follow Christ because we love him? Here's a convicting question that this passage has struck me with over the last couple of years. Why do I pray to God? Do I pray to God to get things from him? Or do I pray to God because I want to talk to him? There's a big difference there. And I have to say, for a lot of my Christian life, my prayer life was basically, God, give me this and this and this, and here's my list. And I think what this passage is trying to teach us is that's a very shallow way to relate to God. 
there's a deeper relationship that we can have where we truly are in loving fellowship with Christ. So do you follow Christ because of material blessings, temporary things that he can give you, or are you like Peter, following Christ because you think he's utterly amazing and worth following with everything you have? And every word he speaks is like a a breath of life into your soul. You just can't imagine a life without Jesus, without the Bible. In other words, do you follow God for his blessings or for him? It's interesting, we consider selfishness to be incompatible with love in all of our relationships, right? So if you were to ask me, why do I love my wife? And I said, well, because she cooks for me. I do love Catherine's cooking, but if that's the reason I love her, that's a problem. Okay? If you ask, why, why do I love Catherine? Well, because she's beautiful. Okay, she is beautiful. But if that's the sole reason I love her, that's a very shallow relationship. And, and what happens uh, when she doesn't cook for me? What happens if she ends up uh, with cancer? She's in a hospital bed somewhere. That shallow love doesn't last very long in those situations. There's got to be something a little deeper there to get you through that. So here's a good test to see how you're doing with this. If God never answered another prayer, and you knew he was never going to answer another prayer, he was never going to give you anything you ever asked for again, would you still talk to him? If not, may I suggest that you may be following him for bread. If God took your job, if a loved one died, if your house burned down, if everything that was important to you was taken away, would you still serve Christ? By the way, this, this isn't just an abstract thought. We have an entire book of the Bible that's about this, the book of Job, where literally everything that Job cared about was taken away from him. His kids are dead. He loses all his possessions. This disaster comes on him. His body is afflicted and tormented, and yet he says, though you slay me, yet will I trust you. The Lord gave this to me, and the Lord's taken it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a deep relationship with God. That's not just following him for bread. If you're here during the 10 o'clock hour a few weeks ago, we played this song, and I'll not take time to play it now, but the last verse says, Should my life be torn from me, every worldly pleasure, when all I possess is grief, God be then my treasure. Is your love for God circumstantial and subject to change? As I was writing this sermon, I, I started to think about my wife, and I started to think about what would happen. What would happen to my relationship with God if something happened to my wife? In other words, is my, is my relationship with God dependent on his blessing me with a healthy wife? And that's a hard question to ask. I don't know how I'd respond. You know, it, it's something I don't like to think about, but I think it's good to think about it sometimes because we don't want our fellowship with God to be dependent upon circumstances. And even things that we love and blessings that God gives us, we can be thankful for them, we can appreciate them, but we don't want to love God because of them. We want to love God because of God. If we truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he has the words of eternal life, that the Bible is what it claims to be, then whether God's providing bread for us or not, we ought to be able to say, there's nowhere else to go. Uh, Where would I go, Lord? What do you mean am I going to go away? There's nowhere else to go. There's nothing I'd rather do than serve you. There's no one I'd rather follow than you. In other words, there's nothing in the world that I value and cherish as much as you. One of my favorite authors, uh, John Piper, he wrote a book called Desiring God. And this is basically the theme of the book, is desiring God above everything else in your life. And as he expands upon this theme about finding ultimate satisfaction and joy in God, he says it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And as, as I think about this, and Piper uses the example of his wife as well, that if, um, 
what brings honor and worth to her is your valuing of her. So what, what brings honor to my wife is when I value her so much that I want to spend time with her, when I could be doing other things that are important that I enjoy doing, but I love nothing more than spending time with my wife. That brings value to her. That makes her feel honored and cherished. And it's the same way with our relationship with God. If we're satisfied in him and if we love him more than anything else, if we treasure God, that is what brings glory to him. To value him like the pearl of great price, Jesus said a man went and sold everything that he had and did it joyfully in order to gain that pearl. It shouldn't be a duty, in other words, to serve the Lord. And I know it's hard sometimes to get up in the morning and come to church. Trust me, it was hard for me this morning. Actually, I left work a little bit early last night so I could get about three or four hours of sleep. It's hard to wake up on Sunday morning sometimes. And I understand there's a, there's a physical part of you that's like, man, I'm exhausted from a week of work. But we don't want to just serve God when it's easy to. That reveals a shallow love. We ought to be willing to say, no, there's, there's nowhere I'd rather be than hearing the Word of God. If you're in a church that's teaching the Bible, that ought to be a very important time of your week. But that segment, you, you don't want to miss that. I'm th- I was thinking about Marvin as I was writing this. Few, uh, f- I don't know if it was two months ago, maybe Marvin was sick. And Marvin never misses. I mean, he's here every service. And sometimes when there's not a service, I'll come in and Marvin will be here doing something. But Marvin wasn't here for a couple of, two weeks in a row, I think. You were out sick. And I remember on Wednesday night, when Marvin finally made it back, he said, I just hated that I couldn't be there. Like, it's just, it, you could just tell it tore him up that he missed church. And that, that's a great response. I mean, it ought to tear us up. It ought, we ought to hate the fact that we can't be here. The people here in this story, they were so focused on eating a meal that they missed who was standing right in front of them. They focused on the blessings that God had provided for them, and they wanted those blessings, but they didn't want God's Son. Reminds me of something Charles Spurgeon said, I looked at Christ, and a dove of peace flew into my heart. I looked at the dove, and it flew away. It's like, I just love that quote. Charles Spurgeon has a way of, uh, of saying things. Don't look at the blessings and circumstances for your contentment. Look to Christ. Be satisfied in him. Esteem him as the greatest treasure in the world. And spend your life not pursuing those temporary pleasures, but go after Christ, and you'll never be disappointed. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I wonder what effect this would have on our lives if we truly cherished and treasured God above everything else. And if he was the most important aspect of our lives, what kind of effect would that have on us? I thought of three things. Number one, our time and money reflects our priorities, right? We all know this. If I love my wife, I'm going to spend money on her. I'm going to spend time with her. That's just, if you want to know what's important to you, look at your checkbook and look at your schedule. Those are, those are going to reveal that. If you spend a whole lot of time in front of a, a television watching sports, well, you're a big sports fan, and there's nothing wrong with that, I don't think. But uh, you can just tell by how you spend time and money what is important to you. And so I wonder, does, does your finances and does your, the way you spend your time reveal a love for God and a prioritizing of God above everything else in your life? And that's a convicting question for everyone starting with me. Okay, there are, there are things that I think, man, I could really spend less time doing these things that really don't matter. And I could spend more time with Christ. I could spend more time in the Word of God. And number two, I think another effect of this would be we would be able to live in unity with those around us. If Christ was the most important focus of our life, secondary things wouldn't seem like that big of a deal. When Christ is small, things are big. And when Christ is big, things are small. It, re- it really takes care of a lot of uh, fighting and a lot of disruptions in Christian relationships when we are focused on Christ. 
Number three, this might be the most important one, we would be able to fight sin with greater power. Piper brings this out in the book. He says, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. I'm going to read that one more time. I want you to really get this. I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it, for sin, because of a superior satisfaction in God. Have you ever tried to stop sinning in a particular area of weakness? And we all have weaknesses. We all have sins that we struggle with. Have you ever tried to just stop it? How did that work for you? It doesn't work too well. If we just try to work harder and focus our attention on on trying to stop, uh, normally that ends up leading to failure. I think a more effective way is to focus on Christ, to focus on God, to desire Him more. And the more your desire for God grows, your desire for those other things, those sinful things, begins to diminish. The famous song says this way, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So you might be thinking at this point, how do I do this? I want to desire God. I think this, this is one of the, one way of describing most of us probably at most points in our Christian life is we desire to desire him, right? We want to desire him, but it's just not there sometimes. So how do we cultivate a desire for God? And this, this isn't something you can just stir up. You're not going to be able to just stir up affections for God. Those, those will fizzle out. But I think the way we cultivate a deeper relationship for God is to actually observe him. Again, Piper writes in his book, but to enjoy him, we must know him. Seeing is savoring. In other words, seeing Christ causes us to savor him. If he remains a blurry, vague fog, we may be intrigued for a season, but we will not be stunned with joy as when the fog clears and you find yourself on the brink of some vast precipice. In other words, looking at God and learning more of Him causes our affections for Him to rise. Here at Lakeshore Baptist Church, this is one of the reasons I started attending this church, and I love this church, is the centrality of the Scripture. Because the more we learn about God, the more our desires follow that. The more I know Christ, I can't help but love Christ more. And it's when we start to slack, really, in our, in our personal devotion when we start to let other things get in the way of really spending time focusing on God and learning of God, that's when our our desire for God starts to wane. So I I want to encourage us, first of all, two weeks from now, again, I mentioned this during the announcements, but we're going to be starting a series through the book of Luke. The reason we're doing this is to focus on Christ with the hope that we will have a, a greater desire to serve him and a greater love for him by knowing him more. So we're focusing on the book of Luke particularly Because Luke is all about Jesus, right? It's one of the Gospels, and it's actually the largest of the four Gospels. It covers all of Christ's life from before his birth to after his death. I hope that by preaching through this book and by studying this book, our affections for Christ will rise. That's really my intention here. That's my agenda behind preaching through the book of Luke, because I want you to fall in love with Christ. And I am convinced that if I am able to preach about Christ and show you what Christ is like, you're going to fall in love with him. You just can't help it. And so what I would encourage you, if you want your desire for God to grow, don't miss church. Don't, don't miss a single service as we start going through this book of the Bible. I would encourage you, and I understand schedule conflicts happen, but if you're able to make it out on Wednesday nights and also for our Sunday 10 o'clock service, these are times in which we dig into Scripture. 
And if you feel like personally your desire for God just isn't where you want it to be, I would challenge you to be there for those. I think that these studies of Scripture will help you to grow in your knowledge and in your love for God. So the reason we're doing all of this as a church is to learn more about God and His Word for the purpose of stirring our hearts to greater love and devotion to Him. And I truly believe if you, if you attend this church very long, uh, you will learn and you will grow. That's, that's my intention. That's my heart. 2 Peter 3.18, I'll read this for you. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. That's really been a theme verse of mine really throughout my life, but especially now that I'm thrown into this role of pastor as I'm thinking about what is it that I want to accomplish in our church, this is really the main thing. I want every church member to grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I believe that as we grow in our knowledge of Christ, we'll be drawn to glorify him more. The more you know Jesus, the more thrilling he becomes to you. This is my prayer for all of us, that we'll desire Christ above everything else in our life, because knowing Christ is the ultimate satisfaction. It, it's sad to me how content we can be with other things, lesser things. We just want that next meal. We want the bread. We'd be thrilled if Jesus could just feed the 5,000 again, right? And maybe that's not a big deal to us, but we'd be thrilled if God could bless us in some material, temporary way. And we miss the greater goal. We miss the, the satisfaction that comes in knowing Christ. One more quote. I'll, I'll close this out here with a quote from C.S. Lewis. This is one of my favorite says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Heavenly Father, I ask that as we ponder these thoughts from your word, that we would be drawn to closer devotion to you, Lord, that our affections would rise as we consider you and your Son, Christ, Lord. As we begin this sermon series two weeks from today in the book of Luke, I pray, God, that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of you. And by growing in that knowledge, Lord, help us to grow in our love for you. Help us to desire you above everything else. I believe that everybody in this room, Lord, has a love for you. But I'm sure I speak for everyone in this room when we say, my love for you isn't what I wish it was. And I want that to grow. I want that desire for you to grow. And I pray, God, that you would accomplish this in our midst, Lord, among each member of this church. I just pray that you would help us to find our satisfaction and our joy in Christ. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.